don't know, even if, even if uh, couples just have one book, you might want to have it in front of you, because a lot of the scriptures are in there, and, and it'll save us a little bit of time in turning. I, I mentioned this, uh, I don't know, I guess a couple weeks ago. I've been gone for a couple weeks on this missions trip, but um, I'd like you, as much as you can, to turn to these uh, passages in your Bible. And I know when you got your Bible and your book and, you know, other things in your hand, it's kind of hard to do that. But if you can, maybe even set it on the, you know, on the seat next to you or something, or... Uh, if you're a couple, then maybe one of the couples can turn to it, but we're getting back into this series, or picking, continuing on with our series then, on, on marriage, and boy, there's so many things that we can learn, so much that, um, that we can uh, pick up just along the way, and of course, uh, in the Word of God, but it looked different in the picture, and you see that it says underneath there, expectations. And uh, I don't know, have you ever seen like a, a travel brochure with pictures that just make this place look unbelievable, you know? And so you finally go to this place and you're like, this is what everybody's making a big deal about, you know? Um, there was actually a couple of things that we went to in Romania that were that way. Um, you know, everybody's talking about it, everybody's talking about it. So we finally go there and I'm just like, this is not very impressive, you know? Um, what's the big, you know, what's the big deal? And um, uh, I actually, I came across an article, it was a travel website, but the, the title of the article was 30 Most Disappointing Travel Destinations on Earth, and, uh, you know, it had a lot of different ones in there, it had like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, I mean, there's basically nothing there except a bunch of, you know, things that you can buy with the Leaning Tower of Pisa on it and this tower, you know, and, and there's so many people there, and that's, that's some of the things that they talked about with some of these um, you know, the, the most disappointing travel places is you get there and there's so many people in line, so many people around there, you can't even enjoy it, you know? Uh, the Louvre in France was one of those. So there's so many people in there taking pictures, you feel like you're walking through the paparazzi, you know? It's just, you can't even enjoy, you can't even enjoy being there. Um, one of the other ones that they mentioned, I've actually, I've been to a couple of the places that they mentioned on there. Most of them are in other parts of the world, but one that they mentioned was the Four Corners Monument. In, it's in the southwestern United States, um, and four states all come together in one, basically one little corner, and so you can stand in four places at one, or in four states at one time, um, which, you know, give or take, you know, I mean, if, if that's something that you're really excited about, but you go there, and it's literally like a circle, probably less than the size of this room with a couple flags in the middle of it, you know, one flag in each corner for that state, and that's it, you know? And people travel, you know, hundreds of miles to get here to see this thing, and you get there, and it's just disappointing, you know? Um, the Blarney Stone in Ireland is another one. You know, they said whoever, because basically if you can lean upside down and kiss this stone, then you'll get the gift of gab. And, and this is funny because this article said whoever came up with that had the gift of gab, you know, <laughs> because it just, it's, it's all these unmet expectations. And, and, you know, so we've all been to these travel destinations that, that was a letdown. And, and usually it's because our expectation was unrealistic, you know. We had expected it to be everything that they showed in the pictures. Look, they do the same thing when you're trying to sell a house too, right? You look at the pictures and you're like, wow, this is a beautiful house. Look how big it is. You know, you get to the rooms the size of this pulpit, you know, it's just, it's just the way they took the picture, you know, and they can, they can make a picture say anything they want it to say. Um, but then you have these un, unmet expectations and it's a big letdown when you get there. And, and I think sometimes the same thing happens in, in marriages, you know. We expect that our spouse or even marriage itself um, will be something um, unrealistic, and then we're disappointed, you know? And, and I think it happens maybe more for people before they get married, but it happens a lot in our marriages too, you know? 
Uh, we see snapshots on social media of, of other people's marriages and how everything in their marriage is perfect and how you know, they've got everything together. I've mentioned this before, but you know, you know that that's not the way that it is. You know? um, they portray this, and so then everybody wants to have what they have, but then that's all these unrealistic expectations. And uh, you know, we build our own expectations based on everything that we see that they have, and then we find out that our mental images of what a perfect marriage looks like is nowhere near what, uh, you know, what marriage really is. And so what we're going to talk about in this, in this lesson, and we're, we're going to split it up between a couple weeks, but uh, some of the common unrealistic expectations that couples tend to have, uh, as well as how we can overcome those misplaced expectations. So let's get right into it. And the first thing is this, expectations ruin relationships. Expectations ruin relationships. Uh, Barb and David. Barb was getting to know David and his family, and, and uh, uh, she was impressed by just how much his parents loved each other. And she commented, to him to, to, you know, commented that to him several times. You know, they're so thoughtful. Your dad even brings your mom hot coffee in bed. I mean, how loving is that, you know? And so after a time, Barb and David ended up, they were engaged, and then they got married. And on the way... Um, from the, wedding uh, from the wedding to the reception, you know, they were riding together in the, in the limo, and Barb said something to David again about it. She said, your parents are just, it's, they're just so loving, you know, it's just, uh, it's, uh, you know, how, how your dad does all of these things. And she said, now, tell me, does that run in the family? He said, absolutely it does. I take after my mother. <laughs> and, you know, Bill got it. He got it. He got it. But, you know, a single, a single incident, I guess we could say, of, of conflicting expectations can be humorous, you know, like a story like that. It can be funny, but, uh, at least in hindsight, but, but uh, when you have a steady stream of expectations and misunderstandings and, you know, you had all, all, these, all these expectations of the way that marriage, you know, was going to be or the way that your marriage should be, uh, then what happens is you end up with just a steady stream of disappointment. And, uh, and in fact, a lot of marital disappointment comes from unrealistic and many times unspoken uh, expectations that spouses have of one another. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I know this from doing, from reading a lot of books and, and um, you know, just uh, uh, doing, you know, finding a lot of articles about this and so on. But I, I know that pornography is one of the biggest things that, that causes uh, unrealistic expectations. And that ruins marriages from, from day one, but that ruins marriages all the way throughout a marriage, you know? Um, and there's been so many studies. There's, in, in fact, if you wanted to study anything out about this, there's a really good... Um, Covenant Eyes is a, um, like a filtering software, but they, they do a lot of research on it. And, and, and it's sad that it happens this way, but, but there's been pastors who have fallen into pornography and, you know... Um, gotten out of the ministry because of that, and now their ministry is focusing on helping other people get out of that addiction and so on. And so they've done all kinds of studies and research and, you know, lots of different things on the pornography industry and, and all of those things. And one of the biggest things that they say about it is, number one, that, that an addiction actually alters the chemicals in your brain and changes who you are as a person. But number two, it, it, it creates so many unrealistic expectations in a marriage. And then, you know, you go home and expect your marriage to be this way, and it's not that way because that's not real life. 
and marriages fall apart very quickly because of that. So we come to marriage with, with more expectations than we realize, uh, whether it's cultural expectations or, you know, expectations of the way that a family ought to be because of the way that our families, you know, that we grew up. Um, but there, there's, there's just, there's a thousand different influences that we have from the time that we're born until the time we get married and then all the way through marriages that, that just shape our perspective and shape, um, you know, our underlying expectations. And what happens is our expectations are so deeply embedded in, into our worldview that we really don't even consider having a conversation about those things because we just assume that everybody has the same worldview as we do. Right? I mentioned that even uh, a couple weeks ago with, when we are talking about missions around the world. You know? uh, we have this expectation that, that as Americans, you know, our, our view of, of church and our view of missions is the only real view. And you know, if, if an American pastor or missionary doesn't start a church, then it can't go on. I mean, that's, that all comes from our worldview. It comes from the way that we grew up. And you know, of course, not, not all expectations are wrong and unreasonable. Um, you know, when you, marriage itself is built on the expectation that your spouse is just going to remain faithful to you. Uh, and so that's, that's not an expectation that is, you know, out of the ordinary or, or anything like that. But um, together you expect that your marriage will grow and that you're both fully committed to it. Uh, by the way, there's a lot of people that say that communication is the number one thing in marriage. And, um, and I think that's wrong. Um, Communication is not number one. Communication, I think, is number two. Commitment is number one. If you're not committed to each other, then you can do all the talking you want to. It doesn't account for anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. Commitment is the number one. And if you're committed to each other, then that communication will come. All of the other things that that make a marriage work will come, but that commitment has to be number one. And you know, that's that is that is an expectation that every spouse ought to be able to just have from their husband or their wife. You ought to be able to expect that they're committed to you. Look, you walked down the aisle and you said your vows, that's what you said. Basically, the short of it is I'm committing myself to you no matter what, that that we're gonna, you know, that we're gonna work on this, that we're gonna stay together, that we're gonna, you know, fight through thick and thin to make this happen. And a lot of that commitment ends up going by the wayside because of a lack of communication, because of miscommunication. But I think a lot of it is because of misplaced expectations going into the marriage. And what we're talking about here are expectations that are built on a spirit of pride or a spirit of self-thought. Um, a lot of times they're unspoken. You're not going to go to your wife and say, I think you ought to be doing this. You know, your, your husband, I think you ought to be doing this. But they're, they're just inherent within us. And there are expectations that we have of our wives or expectations that we have of our husbands. And if we're not doing them, or if they're not doing them, then we're disappointed. Oh, this marriage is not what I thought it was going to be. And this marriage is just not going to work because you're not this, you know. But that's, that's built on pride. It's built on what I think you ought to be, you know. And, of course, there's a lot of things in the Bible, and I don't want to... Um, um, I don't want to take away from those. Um, a, a husband ought to be able to expect that his wife is going to be a godly wife. A, a wife ought to expect that her husband, ought to be able to expect that her husband is going to lead the family in a godly direction. And so, you know, when some of those expectations are not met, then, then okay, maybe you have a little bit of, of leeway to say you ought to be doing this. This is what the Bible says you ought to be doing. But, you know, what happens when, with those unrealistic expectations is that we start to become bitter toward our spouse and they have, number one, they, most of the time, they don't even know why you're bitter toward them, you know? They have no idea why you're mad 
but it's because of your unmet expectations that you went into the marriage with. And, and, and turn, with these, turn with me to these passages. Or actually, um, I believe you have, yeah, you have all of these on your, um, in your book or on your sheet. Do you have a book? Do you need a sheet? All right. Um, but there's a lot of, and I'm going to go through these quickly because I don't, you know, I don't want to stay on these for the sake of time, but we see a lot of unmet expectations throughout Scripture. Some of those were unmet, unmet expectations when it came to the way they thought God ought to be reacting. Uh, there were unmet expectations, you know, unrealistic expectations that they expected from other people. But the psalmist Asaph here in Psalm 73 expected that ungodly people should not experience wealth while he was serving God and struggling to do it. And so when his expectations weren't met, he, he literally, and you can, we'll, we'll read these couple verses, but he literally almost lost his faith over it. He says this in Psalm 73 in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 16, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. You can read through that entire psalm. What he's saying is, how is it that they are able to be prosperous? Here I am serving God. Here I am giving my life to God, and they're prosperous, and I'm struggling. How can that even be? I'll tell you how. It's unmet expectations. He went into it expecting that God was just going to bless him and give him everything, and you know, he was going to be wealthy and have all of these things. And when those expectations were not met, he, he almost completely gave up on God. It was only in verse 17. Not until I went into the sanctuary of God did I realize that my expectations were not founded in reality. Uh, Rachel expected that she would have children, and she blamed her husband, Jacob, when she didn't have children. Genesis chapter 30 and verse 1. Wait, when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Here's another example in Matthew chapter 20. The workers that were in Jesus' parable here uh, thought they should be compensated above what they had been promised. Uh, and when they weren't, they, they held a grudge. And, and we don't have time to go through this entire story, but we'll pick it up kind of in the middle. Uh, when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. What happened is, in this, earlier in this passage, is they agreed that they would work for this guy for a penny. Now, a penny was a day's wage, so it's not literally like, here's your penny, go, you know, thank you for all the work. It's a penny was a day's wage back in that time. Well, these guys started early in the morning, and then later in the day, they realized that they didn't have enough workers to finish this job, so they went out and hired other workers for a penny. And so they got to the end of the day, and here's where we pick it up in verse 10. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which, should have, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. So here they had these expectations that they were going to get paid more. Well, these guys are only working an hour, and they're getting pennies, so man, we should get at least two now. And they got there, and they all got the same thing, and they were upset. They held a grudge against this man because of their unmet, unrealistic expectations. Now, one of the classic accounts of mis misplaced expectations, I think, is in 2 Kings 5. The Syrian captain, Naaman, he went to the prophet Elijah to be healed of leprosy. And leprosy was a, a serious disease. Now, Naaman was basically second to the king. He was the captain of the king's guard in Syria, which, I mean, the Syrian army was one of the most feared armies in the known world at that time, and he's the captain of that army. And so Naaman goes to Elijah's doorstep with this, huge expectation that Elijah is going to treat him like royalty, 
that Elijah's going to bow down before him and say, let me heal you, what can you give me? And Elijah sent a servant to the door. He didn't even come to the door himself. He sent a servant to the door, and the servant told Naaman, go dip in the, in the Jordan River seven times. Now, the Jordan River was known for being one of the dirtiest, muddiest rivers around there. And Naaman got all upset about it. And by the way, anger is one of the um, classic indicators of unmet expectations. Um, notice Naaman's response in verse number 11. But Naaman was wroth and went away and, be, and, and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Far, Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. Naaman came to Elijah's house with a, a full set of, of expectations. You know, um, he expected that Elijah was going to come out in person, that he was going to perform this, you know, this wonderful ceremony and just wave his hand over him and the leprosy was going to go away. And when that didn't happen, he left in a rage. And, 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 and we don't have time to read the rest of the story, but really it was only the, by the persuasion of Naaman's servants that they said, Naaman, he's given you an opportunity to get rid of your leprosy. Can't you just go dip in the Jordan River seven times? I mean, that doesn't seem like a very hard thing to do. And so he finally agreed to go do that. And, and you know, Naaman did experience that miraculous healing by God after he did what was, you know, told to, of him to do uh, by Elijah. But think about Naaman's initial response there. Right there in that first verse, he said, Behold, I thought. Behold, I thought. When you, when you hear yourself saying, but I just thought, uh, that's your clue that you're dealing with unmet expectations. I just thought that this is the way that marriage would be. I just assumed that, fill in the blank. I mean, whatever you want to say about it. Um, but when you feel the frustration and the anger rising, that's another indication that, uh, that you're responding to unmet expectations. So here's several common unrealistic expectations. The first one is this, marriage will make me happy. Marriage will make me happy. Now, it's easy for people who are not married yet or people who are struggling in their marriage to turn marriage into a personal idol and basically believe that the, that the perfect spouse is the answer to the unmet expectations, um, the answer to any unhappiness in life. Well, if I, hadn't just, if I just hadn't married that person, then, then if I married the right person, then marriage would be perfect. Then I would be happy. Uh, but this expectation puts an incredible pressure on a spouse. No spouse is perfect. I don't think any spouse would claim to be perfect. And then on top of that, think about all the unmet expectations that your spouse had that you haven't met. Marriage, uh, you know, only Jesus can give you that continuing happiness. Now, marriage can certainly be a part of that happiness. You know, I, I can't imagine what it would be like if I still lived, you know, uh, single, like a college student or something like that. I mean, marriage make, can make you happy, but that's not the source of happiness. Jesus Christ is the source of happiness. So just because, you know, oh, my life is so miserable, I can't wait till I can get married. Oh, let's go get married. Now, why am I not happy? Because marriage does not make you happy. Here's another uh, common unrealistic, un unrealistic expectation. 
Uh, well, actually, let me look at these verses real quick. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. John 10, 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You know, marriage is, is, a, is a wonderful gift of God, but it's not a place to depend on for your happiness. Here's another common unrealistic expectation. My spouse should meet all of my needs. My spouse should meet all of my needs. Focusing on your needs can ruin a marriage. And every husband has unique needs. Every wife has unique needs. Turn over to Ephesians 5. I'd like you to look at this passage with me. I know we have it there, but I want you to see it in the Bible. Ephesians 5 speaks to the individual nature of every spouse's needs as it commands wives to honor their husbands, husbands to love their wives, and we're going to look at this a lot more closely in the next lesson. Well, not next week because we're going to be finishing up this lesson, but the week after. Um, but Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. I mean, look, no, no, nobody would say that they would try to tell the Lord what to do, right? Um, but wives are supposed to submit to their husbands the same way that they submit to the Lord. Uh, verse 25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And it sounds harsh. Oh, how can you tell a wife that she has to submit to her husband the same way that, that she would submit to the Lord? He's not God. He can't. No, he's not. And he's not perfect. But if a husband is loving his wife the way that Christ loves the church, then the wife should have no problem submitting to her husband. It goes hand in hand. A lot of husbands want to say, I'm the, I'm the man of this house. You do what I tell you to do. And, and okay, I mean, that's in the Bible. But it also says that a husband should love his wife the same way that Christ loved the church. Look, Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. Nobody's given their lives, nobody here has given their lives for their wife yet. Right? In fact, we don't want to give up our comforts many times for our wives. And so if, if we're being the husbands that we should be, then it should make it very easy to be the, for the wives to be the wife that they should be. Now, it doesn't excuse either one. The wife still has the responsibility to obey and to, and to submit to her husband. The husband still has that responsibility to, to love his wife the way that he ought to love them. Just because the wife is not doing her job or the husband is not doing his job doesn't mean that everybody's you know, responsibilities go out the window. Um, but... When we have uh, the individual nature of the spouse's needs, the wife needs to be loved, the husband needs to be respected, then everything goes hand in hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians 13, is the, the entire chapter is the chapter about love or charity. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. I mean, there's so many things that, that charity really is, and that's what you ought to have in a marriage between a husband and a wife. But don't miss the obvious. The command to each spouse is to meet the other person's needs, not to focus on your own. Every single marriage would work if the spouse was focused on the other person. The husband cared only about his wife, and the wife cared only about her husband. There would be no problems in a marriage. The reason there are problems is because we start focusing on our own needs. Well, I'm not getting this. She's not doing that for me. He's not doing this. He's not doing that. And when we start to focus on ourselves, that pride takes over, 
And we, we are stepping outside the bounds of what the Bible tells us we ought to be as a spouse. And that is to give ourselves to our husband or give ourselves to our wife. So that's another unmet expectation, that uh, common unrealistic expectation. My spouse should meet all my needs. Here's another one. My spouse will change after marriage. Somebody pointed out once that a man marries a woman expecting her to never change, and a woman marries a man expecting to change him. And they're both wrong. You know, um, that's, it, that's just, I mean, people change over the marriage, and it's not your job to change them. Um, obviously, our goal is to become more like Christ. And if the husband is trying to become more like Christ, and the wife is trying to become more like Christ, they're going to be brought closer together. But marrying someone with the expectation that they're going to become a different person after marriage is, is unfair and it's unreasonable. Um, you know, marriage is not a, a magic potion or a magic change agent that transforms a person. Uh, you know, before you're married, your job is to, be the, is to make sure that the person you're going to marry is the spouse that God wants you to marry. And if that's the case, there's, it's not your job to change them after you're married. Um, your job is to work to understand and to love the person that you married. 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Here's another common, unrealistic expectation. Marriage is easy if you're married to the right one. Marriage is easy if you're married to the right one. Now, I will say this. Marriage is easier if you're married to the right one. But once you're married, that is the right one. There's no, there's no uh, wiggle room in Scripture that says, oh, well, if you happen to marry the wrong person, then you can get divorced and go try to find the right person, right? There's no wiggle room for that in the Bible. Once you're married, you are married, and that is the right one for you. Uh, but that, you know, to, to young people, I would say that it's so important that you find the right one uh, but once you're married, marriage, m good marriages take effort. Uh, it requires real work to understand your husband. It requires real work to understand your wife and to honor and love your husband or your wife. That's why God commands us to dwell together according to knowledge. He says that in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 7. We are to seek to understand and really know our spouse. 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. A spouse that is passionate about their marriage uh, and about a strong marriage thinks about his or her spouse often and, and constantly invests in that relationship. That's what making a marriage work is all about. Marriage is not easy all the time. You know, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe you never uh, were in, in, a, in, a, in college in a dorm, uh, but I was, in, I was in a dorm room with usually three guys, sometimes four, and you might get along great, but after you spend, you know, 24 hours a day with these people for three, four, five, six weeks, you eventually end up getting at each other's throats at least a little bit, even if you are good friends and even if you do get along, right? And the same thing happens within a marriage. When you're in a confined space with one person, for a, an extended period of time, there's going to be things that they do that get on your nerves. And there's going to be things that you do that get on their nerves. It's not always going to be just, you know, it's not always going to be a honeymoon. I mean, you can make the honeymoon last as long as you can, and, and that's the way that marriage, you know, you ought to be trying to do that in your marriage. But marriage is not easy. 
a good marriage takes work. It takes effort. It's, it takes, you know, a lot of, uh, again, just thinking about your spouse as often as you can and trying to do things that are going to be, uh, you know, helpful for them and, and uh, enjoyable for them. Here's another one. And this kind of goes right along with that last point, but this is another unrealistic expectation is that good marriages never struggle. The actuality is that most marriages at some point will hit a wall. Sometimes a couple is, you know, surprised by maybe a season of difficulty in their marriage. They didn't expect this to happen. And now here they are. Um, there's this faulty expectation that leads them to assume that the marriage is as good as gone. Because, oh, here we are, we hit a wall, we're in the middle of this difficult time. I think a similar false expectation is, you know, but I thought godly spouses never need marital counseling. Look what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11. Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. See, once again, um, people with good intentions struggle. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that life is going to be perfect. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean your marriage is going to be perfect. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean your kids are going to be perfect. You're going to struggle. You're going to struggle in every area. You know, Just because you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior doesn't mean every problem in the world goes away. Doesn't mean that everything is you know, all you know, roses and sunshine. There's still going to be struggles. And you still need counsel, and you still need merit, you know, marital advice. Um, but I think, and we're going to look at this, this is a little bit later on in the book, and, and take some time to talk about you know, seeking marital counsel. But for now, we have to recognize that to refuse godly counsel is to reject God's plan for safety. It's exactly what he says in Proverbs 11. Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. If when you come to a tough season in your marriage, uh, you recognize that every difficulty can be worked through, uh, can be worked through with the grace of God, um, with biblical truth, perhaps that includes wise counsel. I mean, uh, but a determination to strengthen your relationship through a storm, you're going to come out stronger on the other side, right? I mean, look what happens with a little, a little tree that's planted in the ground. If it never had any wind pushed up against it or whatever, then the ground gets soggy and a little wind comes and the tree falls over, right? But you take a tree that's in the middle of a giant field. I mean, that tree has had so much, you know, wind against it and storms against it, and it's all gnarled and, you know, uh, just, but it's strong. And you know why? Because it went through storms and it came out. Instead of crumbling and falling apart and giving up, which, you know, I mean, obviously a tree doesn't necessarily have feelings to be able to do that. But instead of giving up, it used those storms to make itself stronger. It pushed the roots in deeper. And instead of letting that be the thing that destroyed it, it lets it be the thing that makes it stronger. And that's exactly what we ought to look at when it comes to struggles in our marriage. Your marriage is going to struggle at times. Now, it shouldn't be the norm, but it's going to. And that shouldn't be the thing that breaks the marriage apart and pushes it, you know, pushes you in opposite directions. It should be what brings you together and makes you stronger. It should push your roots deeper. And then you should come out stronger on the other side. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. 
You know the marriages that you look at and you just know they're perfect? They aren't. They aren't. There are no perfect marriages. Because at the end of the day, a marriage is made up of two imperfect people, two sinners. Now, they might be saved sinners, but two sinners who still have a sin nature, who still have a flesh that fights against the Spirit of God, who still have that desire to make me number one. And those are going to come up in, in your marriage from time to time. And when that happens, the marriage is going to struggle. So every Christian marriage, even godly Christians, are going to have difficulties. What sets strong marriages apart is that they're committed to work through those difficulties. And that's why I say that commitment is number one. You can talk about those difficulties all you want to, but if, there's not a, if it doesn't drive you to a deeper and a stronger commitment, then you're missing out on the entire point of the struggle. Look, God allows us. He doesn't cause us to go through struggles, but he allows us to go through them. And when he allows us to go through those struggles, he's using it as a way to make not just ourselves as individuals stronger, but our marriages and our families stronger. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 9. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. That means that nobody has the right to dissolve a marriage. Not a judge, not a husband, not a wife, not anybody. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Look back over those expectations. Do you see any of your thoughts in any of those unrealistic expectations? If you were to finish this sentence, but I just thought that he would blank, or I just thought that she would blank, how would you fill in that blank? Because all of those are unrealistic expectations. You ought to go into the marriage, and you ought to continue your marriage without any expectations at all. Here's number two. I'll give it to you, and then we're going to, uh, we'll be done for this morning. We'll fi finish number two and number three next week. Happiness is found in humility. Happiness is found in humility. I had you turn to Philippians chapter two. We'll read through this passage, and then we'll be done. Verse number five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Think about this. This is God that we're talking about. Not only did he make himself a man, he made himself a servant among men. Talk about humility. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Those are convicting words. And then we're commanded to be like Christ. So, happiness is found in humility. Oh, how can, how can happiness be found in making yourself less than what you really are? Try it. Happiness is found in humility. We'll look at that and the next point next week. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed for the next service. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for the... Word of God, I thank you for what you've given us in the Word of God about how we can not just be strong as individuals, but how we can be strong in our marriages and how you can help us to be what you want us to be in our families. I don't think there's anybody here that would say that they don't want those things. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us as we continue to look at these things in your Word and some practical things along with that, that you just give us the wisdom we need to help us in our marriages, to help them to be as strong as they can possibly be so that we can raise godly kids for you, so that we can continue Christianity into the next generation.
for many generations to come. Pray that you'd be with the service in the next hour, God. I thank you for the opportunity we have to be together in Jesus' name. Amen.